1: I think that I'll evolve over the course of just a track, not because I really
0: need to, but cause mom encouraged that An ambition built for bono till contrition counted fact With laden rhymes embedded in my stomach track WHAK WHAK! Tonight I'll time.
1: Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so that you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. I'm your host, Patrick Beeman. This episode is brought to you by Memorang, MemorangApp.com. Stay tuned to the end of the show to find out how one lucky winner will receive access to one of the premium power-ups from Memorang. Choose from the pediatrics, surgery, or internal medicine power-up by leaving a review of this podcast and sending your screenshot to info at Inside the Boards. Also, head over to insidetheboards.com episode 008 to get exclusive access to a 30% discount on any of the premium Memorang power-ups. On today's podcast, we have a special guest here, Yermi Cohen, who is the founder of Memorang, an online enhanced flashcard and gamified learning application that has content related to the Step 1 exam, Step 2, as well as a number of other different uh, subjects. It's on the rise. Something definitely to look for. Yermi, thanks for uh, joining me today. I appreciate your time. Yeah,
0: it's great to be here.
1: We start every podcast with kind of a question of the day. And today's question, like uh, the last few, comes from the NBME's online official sample questions. A 66-year-old woman comes to the emergency department one hour after the sudden onset of retrosternal chest discomfort accompanied by nausea and diaphoresis. She has hypotension jugular venous distension, and a murmur of tricuspid regurgitation. An ECG shows ST segment elevation in the right precordial leads. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? At this point, you might want to pause the podcast to think about that. The answer choices are A, constrictive pericarditis, B, dissecting aortic aneurysm, C, pericardial tamponade, D, pulmonary emboli, and E, right ventricular infarction. And the answer is E, right ventricular infarction. All right, so you're up, Yermi. Walk us through how you'd approach this as a medical
0: student. Right, so uh, if I was a medical student taking the USMLE Step 1 exam, I would actually really like a question like this because the clinical vignette is so short. A lot of the times when you encounter a USMLE question, you'll have this wall of text, and it'll take you quite a long time to read it. So my advice typically is read the last sentence first, and then look at the answer choices. In this case, I would say, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? And then I would look at the different answer choices. And I'd think in my head, when would those be the right answer? Immediately afterwards, I would read the first sentence or two. And most of the time you might actually be able to get the answer and skip the entire vignette. But in this case, it's so short that it's worth reading all the way through. Okay. This is actually more challenging question than you, than you think about it because there's a lot of overlap in the signs and symptoms and presentation. So the first thing I'll go over is how I would approach this question to rule out the wrong answers and get the right one. But then from a learning point of view, I think it's important to say, when would these be the correct answer? What would we have to change about this clinical vignette so that the answer choices would be different? So we'll just go down the order. With constrictive pericarditis, we're looking at a patient presentation in this clinical vignette at sudden onset. So constrictive pericarditis is not something that's sudden onset. We can immediately rule it out without thinking any further. The next is dissecting aortic aneurysm. Can that be sudden onset? Absolutely. Um, retrosternal chest discomfort, the quality of it being discomfort versus something that's more like ripping or tearing makes that a little bit less likely. So I would look over to the next question. Um, remember that on the USMLE, it's not saying which of the following could be the diagnosis. It says, which is the most likely. A lot of the times, all of the answers are technically correct but only one is the best answer. Hmm. So the next is pericardial tamponade. Could this happen? Yes. What's unfortunate here in the clinical vignette is we don't have any history. All we know is that she's come to the emergency department and that she had sudden onset retrosternal chest discomfort. We don't know if there was trauma. We don't know if she was in an accident. We don't know anything else about the patient history. So with pericardial tamponade, a lot of the times we're looking for Beck's triad. Diminishing heart sounds, elevated JVP, and hypotension are the three things you should be looking for. The patient does have hypotension and jugular venous distension, but no mention of diminished heart sound. So I'd say that this is still, could be an answer if I was going through this. Next is pulmonary embolus. Almost none of this actually really overlaps. You're thinking about something that it could be sudden onset if it was a massive PE, but we're really talking about tachycardia. We're not talking about ST segment elevation in a pulmonary embolus. So that would be less likely for this clinical scenario. There's also nothing in the history that suggests that this patient's at an increased risk, such as, you know, being on a long flight or having hypercoagulability. The last answer, right ventricular infarction. This is the correct answer and everything listed overlaps. We see signs of right heart strain. ST segment elevation in the right precordial leads. We have possibly a new onset murmur with tricuspid regurgitation and an hour of sudden onset retro sternal chest discomfort. So in deciding between E, right ventricular infarction, and B, pericardial tamponade, I would tip my hat towards right ventricular infarction because it's a little bit more consistent.
1: I like that approach. And I think that as people train, themselves to approach uh, board-style questions. The thing you did in the past a few minutes becomes almost an automatic thought process, but really does require kind of training, much like an athlete trains for whatever sport that they engage in. Would you agree with that kind of assessment?
0: Yeah, and I think this is something that there's a dichotomy in the way that students and medical students are training versus, you know, experienced attendings think about, how you should be looking at the big picture. The reality is is that that automatic process means that you need to have committed to memory all of the risk factors, signs and symptoms, diagnosis and treatment for these conditions that you could process it in a fraction of a second. When you're taking a USMLE exam, you don't have time to very slowly go through your thought process. Um, You just need to be able to know the information such that you can apply it very quickly.
1: Yeah. And I think one thing when I looked at this question as an OBGYN two years out from residency, so I'm not dealing with these issues too often, what struck me is going down the list of distractors and the correct answer is constrictive pericarditis and pericardial tamponade, while not the same entities, can produce the same sort of result physiologically, kind of like Beck's triad of, you know, kind of a tamponade picture with the JVD, the hypotension, the distant heart sounds, and because Beck's triad is such a high-yield physiologic or pathophysiologic concept, I would almost expect to see all three of those in the clinical vignette, whereas this just mentions hypotension, jugular venous distension, and the tricuspid regurge. So they throw, obviously, those two things in there because this is something you should consider in the differential, either constrictive pericarditis or pericardial tamponade. I think that those those two are are very attractive distractors, if you will. But the thing that really stands out to me is the fact that if you know very little else about myocardial infarction, I think the thing you would know, especially related to EKG findings, is that ST segment elevation is a sort of classic, almost buzzword or essential, specific at least, finding. So that's kind of how I would approach this similarly to and echoing what uh, you did here. Any other good learning points from this to take with them on test day?
0: Yeah, I could talk about this question forever because there's these are really high yield conditions. One thing I'd like to talk about that might be less obvious is What would the EKG show if each of these were the right answer?
1: Okay.
0: For constrictive pericarditis, what would we expect to see on the EKG? And the answer is that it's nonspecific. There's no pathognomonic finding. For a dissecting aortic aneurysm on the EKG, we can actually see ST segment elevation if it's, for example, a proximal to the aortic arch, like a Stanford A dissection, or we can see an ST segment depression if it's more distal to the arch, um but that's not necessarily pathognomonic, but you can see an ST segment elevation with that. Um, for the answer pericardial tamponade on the EKG, we oftentimes think of sinus tachycardia and electrical alterons. Electrical alterons, for those who don't know, it's essentially you're seeing greater and lesser magnitude of the QRS complex. And that has to do with the constrictive nature of pericardial tamponade. However, You can see electrical alterons in myocardial infarction, PE, and some tachyarrhythmias. But if you're going to see electrical alterons in the USMLE, they're not going to be fooling with you. It's going to be something like pericardial tamponade.
1: That's actually an excellent point too, because even the thing you mentioned about ST segment elevation with dissecting aortic aneurysm, my suspicion is that is the kind of level of knowledge that one would want from maybe an internal medicine resident or cardiologists taking their boards. But for the medical students taking it, they're not going to throw in, although it might not feel like that on test day, these sort of zebra presentations. A lot of this stuff is classic. So please continue. You're, I think, going on to pulmonary embolus.
0: Yeah. So pulmonary embolus is answer D. On the EKG, the first thing that we should see that you'll almost always see is sinus tachycardia. In some cases, you might see this triad of S1Q3T3. If you see it, then it points to the diagnosis, but it's not really necessary at all. It's kind of a gimme if you know that's what to look for. But there's going to be no question on the USMLE where you absolutely need to see this S1Q3T3 in order to actually make the diagnosis. And then the last answer with right ventricular infarction, the EKG is essentially what they're saying here. They're simplifying it. They're saying right precordial lead, so you know it's on the right side, and it's ST segment elevation, so you know it's a STEMI. So that's some of the takeaways I take from this question.
1: Okay, I I like that. You're a little closer to this than I am, but with pericarditis, the other knowledge point reflexive thought I have whenever I hear ST elevation I think myocardial infarction if there's some specification such as the right precordial leads or just a few leads if they're ST elevation in all of the leads this points towards more a pericarditis picture in general pan ST elevation is a finding that people do see in pericarditis if I'm not mistaken correct yeah that's correct Hopefully there's a, a few points when it comes to the IM shelf exam or uh, step two. This is more likely a step two level question for the listeners, but first and second years should take note because it's around the corner. All right, so we kind of looked at this question, got this educational kind of discussion out of the way, and thank you for uh, taking time to go through that. Absolutely. Now I'd kind of just like to talk a little bit about yourself. Where did you go to school and train?
0: My undergrad, I did two degrees at MIT. Every- Originally, I did mechanical engineering and biology, and then that was to set myself up for research and things related to medical devices in the healthcare realm. So after MIT, I then went to UCLA for medical school. I had a little bit more of a roundabout path because it took me six years to graduate, but that has a lot to do with memory.
1: So what happened? You were uh first or second year and you started thinking, what we need better flashcards?
0: Well, to be honest, I hate flashcards. I absolutely hate them. I think that flashcards are popular because they're better than the alternative, which is nothing. And so as a kid, I would not use them even in medical school for the first two years, almost the first two years I wouldn't use them, but that was because I did not like memorization. At MIT, we actually have open note for almost everything that we do. Even our biochemistry courses were open note, but the questions were more advanced. Even having the textbook in front of you didn't necessarily help you with them. And that's because engineering is about problem solving. You very rarely need to know things off the top of your head without consulting a resource. So you can imagine my surprise when I go to med school and all of a sudden it's more about breadth than depth. And for me, it took a lot of of adjustment. I started out pretty strong and then I was struggling because I realized that I had to have a completely different approach to how I learned information. I only started to figure it out halfway through my second year and I studied in groups. Uh, I found the smartest kid in my class, uh, Dr. Frank. (laughs) I just... I tried to follow in his footsteps because uh, just the way that he studied and and the aggressiveness which which he brought to understanding every last fact was something that I admired. But at the same time, he was also very efficient. And we started using things like flashcards. I used a program called Quizlet, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure some people might be familiar with. I also used a program called Anki. And it, it didn't work for me. I felt like I was learning things rote, but my whole approach as a student was to understand the bigger picture and how things are related. And so after my step one exam, I had this idea for how we could apply all of these advanced strategies that, you know, top performing students are using and digitize it almost like a personal digital tutor. And flashcards is one of those tools along the way. And that was kind of the birth of memoring It was my own frustration from not being able to memorize information and feeling like a lot of the tools that were out there were too simple for the demands that we had as medical students.
1: This kind of was born, or the, the embryo of it began in the middle of your second year. What did you use? Because that's about the time people start really kind of thinking about step one. What did you use when it came to studying for boards?
0: I made the mistake of trying to use everything. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the biggest problem that that students make is, is it's basically FOMO, fear of missing out on resources. Yes. And so you feel like, oh, well, this resource, this book might have the one or two facts I need to get my target score where it's not in this other book. In terms of resources, I I did use first aid and I used golion because pathoma wasn't popular yet. And I used a ton of other books. I could list them off forever. But those are basically the two big ones. One of the large problems was that, and most of the listeners won't know this, but The 2012 version of First Aid had an average of three or four factual errors per page. Things like saying that reactions went up when they went down. Hormones were increased when they were decreased. Diagrams were switched with labels, even for things like the nephron. We had like a PDF that we annotated, and we probably had around, by the time it was done with collaboration, 20 annotations per page to correct and incorrect information. So that was really frustrating because... People in my year learned wrong info for our exam. And that was that was part of my motivation to create a resource. I said, we're putting all of our faith in these guys. And they didn't even proofread the book. And everyone, and you know everyone, is using it. I felt like that if I were to develop something, that we'd have to take a much, much more rigorous approach to fact-checking.
1: Copy editing is certainly important. We should remind people that if they Google first aid errata, First aid does maintain at least some list of uh, things from their various editions that do need corrected. So if if you're studying your first aid and something seems puzzling or, or doesn't make sense, maybe check that site to ensure that it is indeed accurate or isn't flagged.
0: And and my advice um, to students using first aid is, you know, it's really, really good resource because it's organized and it's high yield, but always carry an element of suspicion when something doesn't look quite right for you and know how to look up uh, peer reviewed information to verify it to yourself.
1: That is good advice. So you're using Gullion First Aid and everything else uh, to study for the boards. About how much dedicated time did you devote to your board study?
0: Uh, We had about eight weeks at UCLA. I took my exam at the beginning of June. And with me, I was basically running around like a chicken with its head cut off. I was trying to use too many resources. I was stressing over every last fact. I didn't quite get the target score I was looking for, despite the fact that I felt like I was studying every last second. And it was actually that frustration of not getting my target score and feeling like I was lost that made me realize that we could make a better approach to simplify people's approach to studying for the step one exam. Okay. Yeah. And and then along the process, I tried to learn these lessons and we started developing memory. Third year of medical school, I synced up with my best friend from MIT, who's a really good computer programmer. And when I took step two, I scored in the 99th percentile, which was what my target was in the 260s. And that was a, a good improvement for me over my step one score. And I felt like I had applied all the lessons that I had learned from my step one prep.
1: That's really interesting. I kind of had a similar experience. I, I did pretty decently on, on step one. But step two, after I had been doing so much writing questions and editing questions and getting into kind of like the, the process of, of multiple choice question creation throughout my third year of medical school. Step two, I think I studied for, like most people, Uh, one third of the time or something and did 30 points or better than I did on step one. And obviously, I think that probably is sort of the reason why somebody like you or me or other people who have devoted their time and energy to preparing students for the boards uh, want to help avoid so that people learn those lessons and come prepared prior to their step one, thereby reducing their anxiety and and helping them feel confident and and really understanding and grasping information rather than learning so-called the hard way. What about the best test success that you've had in medical school? Was it your step two?
0: I would say that it was my step two. It was the last large exam that I took and I had had all this frustration at the end of second year studying for, for step one. I did well in my shelf exams, and I think a lot of that had to do with trying to be more efficient in how I learned. And also having clinical experience that you can relate to your studying is also very helpful.
1: Let's talk more about Memorang then, because I think that's probably what people really want to hear about. How practically speaking did it get started?
0: Well, it started with, with a hike through the Santa Monica mountains, actually. My best friend from MIT's name's George. He was coming down to visit me after I took my step one exam and we went on this eight hour hike and he was asking me about medical school and I was just venting my frustration and we spent the entire hike bouncing ideas back and forth about how we could create a better learning system. And then we immediately got home and started drawing up ideas on a whiteboard. So that's kind of how it started. But then we sat on it for a few months as I started third year. And then we said, okay, let's jot all of our ideas down in like a PowerPoint. And let's see if we can do this. So I made a 100 slide PowerPoint. And there's nothing on that PowerPoint that today We've come up with new ideas for because we were just so in the zone about what people's needs were Yeah. every time I revisit that. And then I actually had to start learning how to computer program because those weren't skills that I had. And George said, if we're going to build this, both of us need to be able to build it. So I started, you know, in between call, I would watch videos on YouTube about how to a computer program, and I was doing tutorials. And so that was a really difficult way to balance my time, learning how to program and start building an application while on uh, like surgical rotations.
1: Yeah, I can <laughs> imagine.
0: <laughs> so I said to myself, if we're going to get this off the ground, the best way to do that is going to be that I'm going to have to take some time off. And I did it under the guise of doing orthopedic research. And it was during that year that we were able to launch a product. We had beta testers at UCLA, and then we launched it about a year later in the uh, spring of 2014, and thousands of students signed up. And I said, okay, this is something that people really like. So what is Memorang? What Memorang is, if students are familiar with flashcards, uh, Memorang is a way that you can input information that you need to know and then quiz yourself on it in different ways according to your learning style. So that means that let's say that you need to know a side effect of aspirin. You could put that down and then you could quiz yourself with a flashcard, a multiple choice question, matching, or a game. And as you're learning, Memoring will give you an objective score from zero to 100% of how well you know it, and it'll adjust the order of when you see different questions based upon how comfortable you are with it. So that's the space repetition aspect. The nice part about it is that, let's say that you get a question wrong on multiple choice on your computer. If you switch to your phone and a flashcard, Membrane will recognize that it's drawing from the same fact and will be more likely to quiz you on it. So basically no matter what device you're using or what mode of study you're using, all the only thing that memoring is trying to do is make sure that you know it.
1: What's the threshold at which like you stop getting quizzed on a given subject? Do you have to get it right ten times? Or is it not that simple?
0: It's it's not that simple. It really depends upon whether you initially got it wrong or if you got it right and then wrong again. Generally speaking, if you got your score for something up to around 90 to 100% and you walked into an exam, your accuracy for that might be around 99%. And that's based upon studies that we've done to correlate the accuracy of being able to draw from information you've memorized compared to the mastery score that we give you on Memoring.
1: Okay. So who's this product best suited for?
0: You know, we're really trying to make it content agnostic meaning that the subject you could use it for could be anything from, we have kids learning basic multiplication in second grade, and then we have people preparing for the medical board exams. That's kind of the spectrum. But that's just the subject area. In terms of the student, I think that if you have a photographic memory, then this program is not for you because (laughs) there's nothing that we could do to help you. Also, if you're the type of person who always likes to draw things out on a piece of paper but doesn't like being quizzed, this program wouldn't be for you. But if you're the type of person who benefits from being quizzed, if you like multiple choice questions as compared to flashcards, and if you like studying with your phones, I think that this would be more likely to benefit those students.
1: Let's look at it um, maybe practically. Your suggestion as as somebody who is very fresh out of med school, you mentioned to me earlier that you just graduated last week from UCLA. Yeah. If I have six weeks to study for step one, how should I incorporate Memorang into my study?
0: The worst thing that you could do is try to learn everything in six weeks. I think that's how I would start. Okay. If you're using Memorang for Step 1, Memorang Step 1 package follows all of the chapters and subsections of First Aid 2016, and we've also supplemented it with Pathoma. So the way that I would do this is you obviously should have UWorld as your bank. You should have first aid and possibly also Pathoma. As you go through your QBank passes, I would also go through the corresponding sections in first aid and Pathoma to reinforce it. And then I would use Memoring as opposed to UWorld for when you want to do rapid fire quizzing. And as you get closer and closer to your exam date, you want to only focus on the areas where you lack confidence. So an example would be, I'm going to do a section on immunology, right? So you might read through the chapter in immunology and first aid, and then you take a little bit of a break, and then you start doing maybe 42, 44 question blocks in World back to back. You go over your answers, eat lunch, later in the day, you would come back and then you would quiz yourself on those same concepts in immunology on memory to make sure that you're actually retaining that information. Some people ask, oh, why should I use both Memorang and UWorld side by side? And while UWorld is a great learning tool, it's a very slow, methodical learning tool. The benefit of flashcards is that you can cover a broad range of information in a shorter period of time while getting that learning benefit from the repetition.
1: I really like what you said earlier about memorang being sort of like a personal digital tutor. Yeah. As far as my use of, of the material, um, just in preparation for the podcast, I thought to myself that this would be a perfect enhancement of something like UWorld First Aid. And I could definitely see myself engaging on a phone, you know, if I had downtime waiting at the mechanics, especially, or some something practical like that. Or at the end of the day, maybe you put a good eight hours in. And you just want to make sure that you re-trigger the uh, synaptic connections for whatever content you covered by focusing on uh, the subject matter that uh, Memorang offers related to whatever your topic of the day for study was. Right. If you were, and this is especially how I would see it being very useful, is on Rotations, when you're essentially spending 90% of your time watching a resident or uh, attending write a note, <laughs> you know, you could turn that time into some useful study. So, if you, instead of preparing for step one, were now taking your um, internal medicine shelf exam, how would you be using memory?
0: similarly or? Studying in third year is so different than studying in first and second year because the time just isn't there. And you don't really get long blocks of study time. It's kind of like eat when you can, sleep when you can, study when you can. With something like Memoring on my internal medicine rotation, the best thing you could do in internal medicine is try and link your studying to stuff that you're actually seeing on the wards, whether it's your patients or other patients on the service. So for example, let's say that you had a patient who had a STEMI. I would go to the Memoring section on EKG's and different heart conditions, and I would memorize all that information in between like lunch breaks, uh, maybe in the morning while I'm eating breakfast, or if you have some block of time when you get home. And then that way, you are not just learning about your own patient, but you're also learning about all the different related conditions and committing them to memory.
1: Walk us through kind of a topic that uh, memoring can help students
0: study. Sure. Um, So earlier, I was talking about immunology. And this yeah. is something that a lot of students struggle with just because it's not something you get a lot in undergrad. So in this example, I've picked a subject, which is complement and cytokines. And if you know the section in first aid on this, it's talking about the different cytokines, which cells they're made by and different functions by them, in addition to bringing in things like the complement pathways and the interferons. So the way that memoring would work is that you'd go to this, what's called the study set, and you would see all the information laid out for you, kind of like a table or an outline. If you're familiar with uh, first aid or pathoma, it would be very similar in terms of how you can view it. The first thing you would do if you were studying this is that you'd read through the outline, just so you know what's there.
1: Just to give yourself an overview that IL-5 is made by Th2 cells and um, functions that produce IgA. And stimulate eosinophils, just kind of like the bare bones essentials.
0: Right. And so you'd read through each of those pieces of information, maybe take a little bit of time. I'd spend maybe five minutes on something like this, but no more. The next thing that you do is that you say, you could pick a way to quiz yourself on this information. Now, whereas a lot of students use flashcards, flashcards are difficult because you really need to know the information in order to answer it. So what Memorying offers is other modes as well, like multiple choice, matching, and even games. So you can more ease yourself into uh, what you're learning, and then you could upgrade to harder modes like flashcards once you feel ready. So for example, I'll pick the multiple choice mode since that's the most popular one. Okay. Um, If I click start, what Memorang is doing is that it's converting a flashcard into a multiple choice question using uh, an algorithm. So what I'm seeing right now is... It's saying IL-6 and what's the function? And all the different answer choices are different functions of different cytokines that you might see. I'll list the answers. So we see fever and production of acute phase proteins, neutrophil chemotaxis, MAC lysine of cells. It stimulates T cells or opsonization and clearing of immune complexes. So the right answer here is that it's... Uh, fever and production of acute phase proteins. So you could click that answer and it would highlight green saying that you got it right. But what you could also do is that you could click and see where the different answer choices were taken from. So for example, maybe I don't know where neutrophil chemotaxis, so I can click a little button next to neutrophil chemotaxis and it'll tell me, oh, okay, that's IL-8 and it's made by macrophages. So just because you got this flashcard question, right or wrong, doesn't mean that's the only learning that you're getting from it. And then you can click next question and then you would see IL-3 and now it's asking you what's the function of IL-3 and it'll pick different ones like function stimulating bone marrow, IgA production, uh, causing anaphylaxis, MAC lysing of cells and related to septic shock. And in this case, um, it has to do with stimulating bone marrow. And that would be the right answer. But if you picked the wrong answer, you could then see where it came from. And as you go through this process, the questions you get right are going to show up less often and the questions you get wrong are going to show up more often. And you can just see your little score go from 50% up to 100% as you're mastering the material. If we exit out of this mode, MemoRang actually just launched its first ever game. We're actually going to launch five of them. But this one's called Eliminator and basically... Your avatar and memorang flies a spaceship, and you have to get right answers to kill the aliens that are invading. And every level that you pass, the aliens come faster and faster. It's very similar to multiple choice, except that you're competing on a leaderboard against all other students around the world, studying for step one, immunology. So that's kind of fun to see how you stack up.
1: It's kind of like Space Invaders a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's spaced repetition meets Space Invaders.
1: I like it. I like it.
0: So this is, this is the kind of thing, if you just are really tired at the end of the day and you want to keep learning but uh, not be fatigued, this is something that you could use. Now, the cool part is that if you get these questions right and wrong in the Eliminator game, that spaced repetition score will transfer back in real time to the flashcards in multiple choice. So you can really mix and match whatever mode that you're using while still working towards mastering this concept.
1: I love this. And I'm, I'm really excited to see this come out into its own dedicated app. And as you mentioned, you, you have a, a mobile-optimized uh, browser experience where mm-hmm. you could play this. But the instructions here tell me the falions, like failing, are trying to conquer the galaxy with their brain-drained laser of DOOM. DOOM is in all caps, right? They're <laughs> bolded. Fight back with your memory missiles and save the galaxy from ignorance, despair, and bad grades you're our last hope. You must stop them. Like, who, who doesn't want to play this game, you know?
0: <laughs> Only people who hate fun.
1: Oh, man. There's a lot of those in med school, though, you know. <laughs> or there can be. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe it was just my med school.
0: Well, um, for, for those people listening on the podcast, the next game coming out is called Rapid Response, and it involves an EKG. And the way that this game works is that as you get wrong answers, the patient's EKG speeds up, And if you get right answer, the EKG speeds down. And if you don't answer the questions fast enough, your patient will eventually reach a heart rate of above 200 and flatline, and then that's game over. So it's basically a race against time and accuracy to keep your patient alive for as long as possible. And then it's also a leaderboard. What other uh,
1: games are in the works?
0: Oh, gosh, there's so many. Uh, (laughs) There's Flashcard Frenzy, which is kind of a game show. It feels like a game show for flashcards. Uh, There's Treasure Hunt, which is like matching, except that you're trying to get gold treasure chests. There's Super Brainiac, which is a bit like Mario. Uh, And then there's one secret one we're working on. Uh, We haven't named it yet, but it's uh, called Monstermon, and it'll eventually be multiplayer. As you get right answers, you build an army to fight for you against uh, incoming waves of enemies.
1: Is this going to be like Age of Empires, but with a boards twist.
0: It's it's a little bit more like a tower defense, okay, with kind of a boards twist. But the nice part is that these games aren't just for the U assembly content. If you upload your own notes for class or if you even if you're learning Spanish, you could play all these same games.
1: And that's another thing that I I'd like to stress you guys do offer some curated premium content uh, that people can purchase, right, for step one, step right. two, the internal medicine shelf exam, surgery shelf exam, as well as a physician assistant, correct? Yeah. And nursing. Yeah. MCATs. And yep. I'm probably missing a few, but.
0: Yeah, there's, there's like 15 or so right now.
1: Yeah, uh, but there's all this free content as well. So really anyone can use Memorang w- without having to pay a premium.
0: Right. So the whole goal is that Memoring is supposed to be a free platform that you could use and you could collaborate with others and just that's why we made it because we really wanted people who felt like they were struggling that they would be able to use like a really quality tool to help them with their studying. Now, what we offer as extra, as we call them power-ups, okay. is that we have teams of experts that will create content and it's there for your convenience if you want to purchase like a 13,000 flashcard pack for the step one. You can, but you're not obligated to. And what's interesting is that there's so much free content on there. I think there's like 9 million flashcards that have been uploaded for free that you can search through. But then we have around 100,000 that are expert content.
1: Okay, awesome. All right. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you uh, coming aboard and hopefully uh, students will start uh, learning using your platform. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, thanks, Patrick. It's been a pleasure.
1: And don't forget to leave a review of us on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app and send your screenshot to info at Inside the Boards. This episode, one lucky listener will win a free premium power-up from Memorang and can choose the pediatrics surgery, or internal medicine shelf exam power up. Inside the slash episode 008 is where you can find the show notes for today. See Memorang in action as well as get exclusive access to a 30% discount on any Memorang premium power up. Thanks for listening. Music from today's show is brought to you by the band Say Anything. The track is Rum off their album I Don't Think It Is. Thanks to Max Bemis and Equal Vision Records for giving us permission to use it. You guys should check out sayanythingmusic.com for more. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Exam, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Exam, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, or National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during this program is the property of Inside the Boards, the attributed trademark owner, and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.